Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. All right, let's dive in a little bit deeper um, into the education sector and understand sort of where we are with charter schools, their impact, uh, their efforts, their aims, um, and hopefully also, I don't know, uh, understand a little bit more about the the origins of charter schools and the leadership um, that is helping to support the movement for those of you that, that support it, that want to know more about it, and maybe um, those that just want more information to have a better understanding of how our education system works here in the United States. In the United States, welcoming in Nina Reese. She's the President and Chief Executive Officer of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, considered the leading national nonprofit organization committed to advancing the charter school movement. Prior to joining the National Alliance, she spent 20 years shaping education policy in the public and private sectors. She served as the first Deputy Undersecretary for Innovation and Improvement in the U.S. Department of Education. Before moving to the Ed Department, she worked in the White House as Deputy Assistant for Domestic Policy to the Vice President. A native of Iran who immigrated to America at the age of 14, she earned her undergraduate degree at Virginia Tech and a master's degree at George Mason. Uh, Nina, it's so nice to spend some time with you. I wanted to go through that background because I think it's important to give context of those who are leading the charge, regardless of where people are in their understanding, I think, um, of charter schools. And that's kind of where I want to start, because it's fascinating to me that charter schools have really been around for, I mean, let's just call it 30 years and some change. And yet, if I just was, you know, spitballing, I would say maybe it's a 50-50 shot that the general public has a firm understanding of what a charter school is, <laughs> how it may be different or similar or dissimilar to uh, a local public school, um, and really how it might impact them as a family in the way in which they decide how to educate and support their children. Can you sort of give a state of the union as to kind of where we are in the U.S. with charter schools? Yes, and first of all, Rob, thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to share what I do with your audience. Uh, charter schools are public schools. Uh, as you noted, they've been around a little over 30 years. The first law passed in 1991 in Minnesota. Um, and, uh, you know, the first person who started talking about charter schools was Bill Clinton on the campaign trail when it didn't exist. And so having someone like that start to talk about this concept was uh, extremely helpful both to giving the cause, this bipartisan field that it's had ever since at the national level, but also to elevate its profile. But it, the fact does remain, despite all these years of being in place, that most people don't know what a charter school is. Uh, they are public, open to everyone, no admission standards, no tests. Uh, and um, they're the best of what public education is supposed to be. Um, so one of the things we've been trying to do at the National Alliance, and we're about to actually launch a campaign on Monday, is to simply uh, talk about what they are, the fact that they're free, public, and open to all, so that more people uh, hear about what they are through us rather than through some of our detractors. Um, the other thing about the polling done on charter schools demonstrate that you know the 20-some-odd percent that know what they are and support them has stayed steady the you know 10% some odd people who don't like the concept that number has not gone up but there is a vast majority in the middle that don't know what they are or they are 
um, misguided as to what they are. They think that these schools are selective schools where there are admission standards or that they are, in fact, like private schools. So we need to make sure we're educating the public much better. In terms of the state of the sector, right before the pandemic hit, there was a big study out of Stanford University that showed that charter schools uh, did better than traditional public schools. Uh, on on all the tests and standard standardized accountability measurements out there. And this was a really important study because when Mackie Raymond, the author of the study, first started doing the work, her first body of research demonstrated we were no better than public schools. In fact, in some cases, we were doing worse. Uh, the, the second set showed some improvements, but this third round, so she's followed the same cohort of schools and is comparing them to similar public schools in the neighborhood. In the third round of her studies, she saw that as charters matured and stayed in, 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 you know, in, in business the longer, the longer they stayed, the better they did with the schools they were serving. And then she also listed a number of gap-busting schools. These are schools that are truly closing the achievement gap between the rich and the poor. They included CMOs, they included single sites. So it's a really strong body of research pre-pandemic. As you know, during the pandemic, we also saw a huge surge by parents towards choice. 1.3 million families or students left the public school system in the 2020-21 school year. About 240,000 of them came to charter schools. So with that data, demand for options went up during the pandemic. And if you had a charter in your community, you were gonna be the school of choice because of all the disruption that was happening in the traditional system. And so we are very grateful to have a community uh, of schools that are doing right by students that Parental demand in those places where we exist is high. And right now, really, the charge is to see how we can leverage all of the learning and all of the enthusiasm for charter schools to take this model uh, to greater heights and to scale. Every state legislature that had uh, supporters of charter schools did something in favor of charter schools during the pandemic, whether releasing additional COVID dollars to create them or help charter schools. Uh, to make their laws stronger. So there's also a lot of positive forward momentum in state legislatures to help charter schools grow. Uh, and we're seeing new charter schools open in communities that didn't have them before in a lot of you know, suburban and uh, rural communities. So that is a, an exciting phenomenon. So it's changing and evolving as we speak and hopefully will have a greater impact on the trajectory of public education and more importantly, on the trajectory of the students who are attending them. Nina, I'm, I'm very curious from your perspective and the national seat that you're in and with your background at the federal level, because what's fascinating about charter schools or in education in general is that depending upon sort of where my plane lands, what state I'm in, I will ha I will receive, you know, you, you just take a, a straw poll of people and you're going to get a different reaction as to whether or not they either like, so assuming people know about charter schools, whether they like them, they've sort of believe in them and or they are, you know, very much against them and they want sort of traditional what we've had is going to continue to work, right? Um, I'm wondering what that's like for you as an organization, because I live in a state like Tennessee where it is a, I mean, it has been weaponized. And it is a very, very hot topic on the political scene um, where they're diving in and you've got, I mean, we could we could have an entire episode just on sort of Tennessee and the challenges that they're having um, when it comes to charter schools, what the governor wants. How do you balance sort of the 
the the variation from state to state on where they are because it feels like it's got to be daunting to some degree. It's almost like you have to run like 50 individual campaigns and or sort of support mechanisms so that your efforts and your objectives are met where you have individual states that are the infighting is just growing and growing and growing. It's like, and I understand the stats that you were talking about out of Stanford. And yet in Tennessee, they released stats that said that, you know, 80% success rate was lower. It was a lower success rate compared to schools in those neighborhoods. And so I know you can always, statistics can always be sort of, you can cherry pick those, right? And you're not saying that everything is perfect. I'm just curious from a leadership perspective, how do you sort of pull people together where some states probably have better relationships amongst the legislature and communities across their state when they're talking about educational options and other states potentially are a little bit more divisive um, and combative? Yes, no, that's a great question. I mean, our view is we are here as a servant leader to the sector. We don't go into a state and dictate what needs to happen, uh, but we are ready to help in those places where there is no leadership on the ground or where the leader needs help. Uh, But it's important to keep this model alive because every state is different. And every so if you look at the statutes that govern charter schools, every state started their charter school law or drafted that initial statute for very different reasons in some communities or in some states it was about innovation it was about innovating in the public school system in other places it was about closing the achievement gap other states it's just about parental choice in other communities it was about empowering teachers so again it's all the same thing at the end of the day but um you know i believe in states rights and i think it's important for us to honor what the laws that the states have created or each intended to do. We have a model law and we give states, you know, we used to rank states based on how well they did on our model law uh, in order to give people a guidepost as to what it takes for you to actually be able to create these schools in a way that has an impact. So funding is really important. The governance of the school, the authorizer, the accountability structures for the authorizers are really important. Uh, it's really important to keep the regulatory barriers low in order to invite innovation. So uh, so that's the kind of guidance we give in order to help the sector. But from an advocacy standpoint, the people on the ground are probably the best equipped to fight the fights at hand, especially in states like Tennessee. And Tennessee certainly also has a good number of organizations that are dedicated to promoting choice and charter schools. Uh, like Tennessee SCORE, there is a Tennessee Charter Schools Association, there are a number of parent organizations, including Memphis Lift, uh, and a lot of leaders, the leader of the KIPP chapter in Nashville is a well-known quantity. Nashville has some of the best charter schools in the nation, by the way, so I'm curious as to where the data you cited comes from. So uh, long and short of it is, I think it's important to honor state and local control, but we also, because we are sitting at the national level, we see what works and what doesn't. So one of the functions that we serve is by looking at best practices and sharing that with other people, whether it's political advocacy, whether it's list building, whether it's parent engagement, um, so there are some some things that you can share across state lines, but at the end of the day, the relationship needs to be with someone on the ground. And that organization on the ground, because there are so many charter schools and families in charter schools, graduates of charter schools, it's really important for those organizations to leverage the voices and the faces of those who are most familiar with charter schools because they're benefiting from them. 
Nina, I'm so curious as to, because I would imagine it's an incredible effort and undertaking for an organization like yourself that has the best of intentions, that has been dedicated, their, has dedicated their career to education and supporting kids and families across the country. How do you separate from all the noise that's outside of just the classroom work or the work that needs to be done at, let's say, the, the local, the state and the federal level to ensure that the roadblocks are cleared in education when we have lots of voices from all over the place. It just feels like you have to fight through that before you can focus on the work at hand. I'm just curious how you do that so ultimately or secondarily that we we maintain sort of an open, uh, inviting and engaging environment or ecosystem of education so that young people growing up want to work in the sector at any level that they feel really fits them, their personality and where they want to contribute to society. Well, Rob, that's a great question. Um, I would say the noise has probably existed since the beginning of time, but it's louder <laughs> now because of social media and because news travels so much faster. And of course, our country is a little bit more polarized than it's been for a while. So, um, you know, for anyone in the education space uh, to be able to do their job, they should be shielded by the leadership of their schools and whatnot. And I personally think it's our job as advocates to create that shield. Uh, so that educators are doing the things that they were hired to do, which is to educate families. We did a poll um, a couple months ago of teachers and discovered the similarities between our teachers and those in the traditional system in a sense that all they wanted to do was teach, that the noise around the work was deafening, and that a lot of them were contemplating leaving for that reason. But at the same time, the poll demonstrated the level of um, you know, um, commitment these very teachers had to their work. They felt it was, you know, one of the best jobs they could they could have. So at the same time that they were dismayed with the noise and looking to potentially leave, they also brought a lot of the components that make make one want to stay in their work. So that's why I think it's important for leadership to make sure that you emphasize to these teachers the importance of what they're doing to stay in the business and to shield them from the political noise around it and some of the policies that could that could come into their schools. And um, and at the end of the day, be confident that the families, when you do the, these similar polls of parents, you get the same results. The parents are not sending their kids to these schools to talk about these political issues. They're sending kids to schools in order to learn to read, to write, and to gain, quite frankly, critical thinking skills in this world where artificial intelligence is changing things so quickly. So, um, it, you know, it's never been more important than ever to give students those critical thinking skills and to really educate them at a level that is much higher than it's been taught before. Uh, so it, I think, again, it's the job of those in roles like mine, uh, to take the hits from the political side, but to shield the schools from uh, getting mired in it. And again, charter schools, because they often operate outside of the school district infrastructure, are somewhat shielded, so they can come up with their own ways of teaching uh, and doing things. But they cannot, depending on the state law, they can't completely get out of what the state statute um, says they have to do. When we think about the so the larger we talk about, I'm thinking maybe about teachers primarily in 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 this thought, and I love your reflection on this. But you know, in a free market, competition is I mean it, that's defines a free market. I mean, that's the engine that that you want in a free market. And I'm wondering in education if competition, when we think about public schools, traditional public schools, and the charter ecosystem, if if we can have both without 
the negative or the residual impacts of school consolidation of sort of teacher withdrawal, like they might be in the classroom, but they're starting to feel like this is really not the career for me. Cause to the point you made, you know, we're talking about the noise and the impact of sort of what's going on and, and the new era, I think of parent participation, I put that in air quotes, cause that's changed considerably. Um, how do, how should we understand the role competition plays? I mean, is the ultimate goal that we are either sort of all public schools or all charter schools? Can we operate and have both within the same community without triggering school con consolidation? And should we be concerned about that regardless of where people sit on what might be a better form or offering of education? Well, that's a really good question. And we personally, as an organization and through years of doing this work, really do think this is not about competition. This is about creating options within the public school system so that parents can find a school that best fits their child's needs. Charter schools are public schools. This is a different form of education that you're getting in a public system. Uh, but of course, the politics on the ground you know, are different because school districts don't always consider charter schools their partners. And in some communities where charters have reached a certain um, market share, you see the competition kind of, the, the, you see the district reacting a certain way. I think it's important for us to do two things very well. One is to, um, to make sure that we continue saying that we're a school of choice, we're here to help, we're here to serve the needs of communities that are not getting what they need out of the public school system. And, and for, for leaders at the local level, quite frankly, to bring charter schools in this, a lot of the same meetings that the traditional public school system is having. So the local superintendent, the mayor, mayors are often outside of that um, public school infrastructure, so they sit in a very good place to host these meetings. Uh, but a lot of the dissonance takes place because people are not face-to-face -face talking and in the same room. Um, and, you know, this is how polarization starts. So the more leaders on the ground can bring these two groups together, we have a lot more in common than people realize. And part of the thing that charters were always supposed to do, and we still have some work to do to get to this place, is share what we're learning with the traditional system. And in order for to do that, you have to be in the same space. Uh, but often the conversation becomes about co-location and, you know, sharing facilities and resources and things that are not ultimately what the work is about. And it's unfortunate because charters at the end of the day get about 25 cents less on the dollar than traditional public schools get. And uh, But at the same time, they, they attract a very dedicated workforce and a one that uh, you know is here really to close the achievement gap in many communities, if, especially if it's in an inner city setting. And so that passion and devotion and enthusiasm uh, and advocacy strength that a lot of these leaders bring helps the public school system in general. Again, when we noted that 240,000 students came to charter schools, that means 240,000 students stayed in the public school system instead of leaving the public school system to go to a private or homeschool setting. So uh, I think we have a lot in common and we should try to have greater dialogue without losing sight of the fact that our ultimate job is to educate students. So you can sit in community and talk all day and how to resolve issues, but at the end of the day, um, that needs to happen in addition to the core task that we were charged with doing, which is to serve our students well and meet the terms of our agreement with our authorizer, which is usually a five-year contract that stipulates what we we're going to do and how well we're going to raise student achievement. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I agree with you on the discourse need and just the, the conversation. And sadly, we're at a point right now where that's just not something that is 
we, we can't take for granted that those conversations are desired by all by all parties. Let's pivot to parents. I know a year ago you you collaborated with the Harris poll you put out in 2022, and it was around parents really as swing voters that it was over 80 percent of them were willing to, in essence, cross party lines for their vote based on an educational platform. So that begs the question, what are the issues that are really pinging the meter that you're seeing in as an organization for parents when they think about their children in school settings? Yeah, so we didn't do our poll of parents again this year. We focused on teachers this time, but there are other polls done of parents. And um, so the post-pandemic stress that a lot of students feel uh, the academic achievement gap. I think a lot of the things that parents want is no different than what we found in our poll of teachers, which is that they want schools to just teach their students, you know, the topics instead of getting mired in book bans and uh, discussions around, you know, race and gender and these other issues. So, uh, so they're going to, you're going to see variances in some places, of course, but by and large, your average parent just wants the school to meet the needs of their students. And uh, the reason why they're attracted to choice options is because a lot of times finding the right fit, you know, your public school may be good for a lot of students, but it may not fit your specific needs. And so having greater options uh, continues to be one of the polling items that does really well amongst parents. Of course, everyone is going to want more. And to the point you raised earlier about parents uh, crossing party lines, that remains the case. And if you look at the most recent poll by Democrats for Education Reform, and this is a little bit different from what you're asking me, one of the things they found is how much Democrats have lost their edge on education because Republicans are talking so much more about the topic. And so, um, you know, politicians really do need to pay attention both to what they say but also what they do in office in order to serve the needs of families. And those needs are always going to be about academic achievement and success and making sure students are graduating with the skills they need to enter college or go into the workforce. They're not going to be around some of these other issues that um, the media and others are focused on. Speaking of the teacher survey uh, poll, uh, if you step back again, I want your your unique perspective. It's we don't use box scores really in sports anymore, but I always love it when I see a coach who will say, "Well, this is the one stat that I look at as a coach to know whether or not we've been successful on the field of play." When you're looking at the results of the teacher poll, uh, is there a is there a stat or a trend that for you really stands out that maybe isn't talked about or something that you you earmark as one to watch moving forward because either your gut tells you or you've just seen too much behind the scenes to say we've got to really pay attention and elevate what that might mean and the implications of that result? Well, yes. Uh, you know, one of the, uh, the most interesting data points is around uh, the fact that the, the longer our teachers stay in schools, uh, the more they believe in, in charter schools. And for whatever reason, then the same um, number didn't hold for those in the traditional system. The longer they stayed in that system, the more they felt stifled or uh, lost enthusiasm and energy. They were still dedicated to what they did, but there's something in the charter school medium that keeps our educators uh, more dedicated and enthusiastic about the work. And personally, I think it's because they have greater freedom to run their schools, to adjust what they do, and to work with leadership because 
you know, these are. Do you think mission plays a role in that, Nina? I'm just wondering from, I'm not saying marketing. That sounds like it's shallow. I don't mean that. But when I think of a charter school, I think about whether, again, whether you agree or they're going to come out and say, this is a mission that we have. It feels different. And maybe it, it, I just, it's, it's newer. It's, it's a different maybe way to communicate about the way in which they're going to educate the people want to get, I mean, we think about the younger generation, it's, you know, purpose over profits for a lot of them. Is there somewhere about the mission of what they deem a charter school is, is um, aspiring to be that that alone can separate or distance itself from a, what might be seen as a stagnant environment that has just been around for decades? Oh, absolutely. You, yeah, you took the word out of my mouth and articulated better than I was. Yes. I mean, these schools often specialize in something very specific, whether it's classical education, whether it's STEM, whether it's, um, you know, adult learners, uh, you know, some of them are more back to basics focused. So that in and of itself will attract a certain workforce to the school and because of the dedication to that mission, you're probably going to see a lot more connective tissue between the workforce and the school. Let's close with this, Nina. You've been very gracious with your time and allowed me to go down uh, quite a few uh, rabbit holes here. Uh, Take off your sort of professional hat. Talk with me about being a mom and having to represent uh, sometimes potentially negotiate or calm, <laughs> uh, you know, those in a professional setting. But how do you balance being a mom that is passionate about this, that is not just passionate about it, but has worked and pursued the highest levels of leadership um, in this country? How do you how do you balance that? Is there a sense of pride in in what you represent? Hopefully, I would imagine for your children in dedicating to a cause. Talk about that. The thing that you can't sort of see in a press release but that your closest friends and family say, that's Nina, that's why she cares. That's the, that's the woman that we know. Um, yeah. So I, I have one daughter who just went to college. And um, so certainly being a mom um, makes a big difference in this work because what, what we're advocating for is for more moms to ha- to be able to access a school that fits their children's needs. I live in Virginia. There are no charter schools here. I had the luxury and the privilege to send my daughter to an international school and then later to um, more of a rigorous, academically rigorous program in high school before she went on to college. Those were both in the private setting in DC. But I would say the thing that I, that for me personally resonates the most in this work is the story of my dad and my family, because I'm, as, as you noted, I was born and raised in Iran, left Iran after the revolution and after the war with Iraq. So my parents left everything behind in order to give my brother and I a chance at uh, a great education and the American dream. And everyone in another country knows that that pathway in this country is going to focus a lot on education. It's not going to be the same in most other places, by the way. So if you get a good education here and you have a degree of hustle, then there are huge opportunities that open up afterwards. So we came here uh, because of that promise. And I believe that if my parents are willing to pick up and leave their entire country behind and their family and belongings in order to do that for myself and my brother, every other family should you know, feels the same way. And the the zip code in which a lot of families live in should not be their destiny in terms of where they send their children to school. Well said. I grew up in the Detroit area and the Iranian community is quite substantial there. And I remember working for an Iranian family uh, at a restaurant in Detroit and they just couldn't have been nicer and uh, a pivotal part in my understanding of what it meant to work and work hard as a young person. So I think that's an incredibly important part of your narrative that I think uh, speaks to 
this country and and the pursuit of of better and opportunity really and resource uh, and access to resource. Uh, it's been a pleasure to spend some time with Nina Reese. You can learn more at the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. You can just go to publiccharters.org and learn more about Nina and her executive team and all their research and what they're trying to do to support education across the U.S. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.